This episode is brought to you by the Worth Your Time podcast, where your host, that's me, Erica Anderson, brings you unique and interesting conversations with Christian women working in the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. See you there. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Let us rejoice that he has plainly revealed himself to us in his word as a God who loves us and who, because he loves us, has sacrificed himself for us. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon is entitled, The Example of the Incarnation. It was preached by B.B. Warfield in 1893. Joel, life is difficult. This may sound simplistic, you know, oh yeah, everyone knows life is tough. But it's filled with all these moments that feel really important. They feel very weighty. They're filled with decision. You know, should I move to that city? Should I work that job? What school should I go to? Right? Who should I get to know? What kind of people should I spend my time around? Who should I marry? Right? All these tough decisions, all these moments in our life we have to figure out, and they are tough. They matter. And oftentimes, we just want, at least as a Christian, I want God just to tell me. I want to just know, right? I need to marry that person. They have an arrow above their head. Or I I need to go to that city. There's a green arrow and something circling, just some kind of sign that makes it really clear this is what I'm supposed to do. And it doesn't really work like that. But there is something that can help us. We aren't completely on our own. And that is that God left us his example, a a blueprint of how to live our lives. And we can see that in Jesus Christ. Mm. That's right. Today's sermon is called The Example of Christ, and it was preached by Benjamin Breckingridge Warfield. He went by B.B. Warfield. If you have see a book from his, it'll be it'll be authored by B.B. Warfield. He was born in 1851, so think think late 1800s, going into the early 1900s, towards the end of his life here. But he was a he was a professor at Princeton. He was his nickname was the Lion of of Princeton because uh, he was a professor there for most of his life. Uh, a great quote that I feel like really kind of summarizes his views, his worldview. He says, the Bible is the word of God in such a way that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Now, he wasn't the first proponent of biblical inerrancy, the idea that the Bible is the word of God and what it says is absolutely true. But he was one of the most important, especially of that time and that era, This was a time when theological liberalism was growing and becoming very strong. This idea that God and the church needed to change the match the times. Warfield took people back to traditional Christianity. This was a wild era too. Historically, we were full swing in the Industrial Revolution. Things were leading up to World War I. We had colonialism still going around the world. We had this technology breaking down walls left and right. There were people like Nietzsche who were popular in philosophical circles, and there were anarchists and socialists. You know, presidents were being assassinated. Countries were going and coming. You know, these Marxists were starting to gain power. And in the middle of all this, the, the church was going through holiness movements. The charismatic movements were in full swing. And in the middle of all that, that's when B.B. Warfield kind of steps in. Yeah, it's easy to kind of look around us in today's day and age and think how fast things are changing today, but it, it's really not that bad compared to this era in history. Things were moving, all types of the world was changing, religion was changing, and B.B. Warfield's standing in the middle of this, and he's, he's standing his ground, he's, he's holding fast to this idea that the Bible is perfect, and that was a, a bold move in that time, and he didn't just declare that, but he excelled in it, uh, he wrote a lot of books on it. He debated. He was he was known as a fantastic debater. He kind of helped safeguard Christianity through this 
era through this time in history. His personal life is much more tragic. He was born in 1851 in Kentucky. His dad would actually be a Union soldier in the Civil War, and he grew up quite wealthy. He had a great education. Everyone expected him to be a scientist. After graduating Princeton, though, with honors at the age of 19, he goes on this trip to Europe. And while he's there, his parents and his family are very excited for him. But one day they get this letter just out of the blue. And he tells them, I'm returning to America to, to go be in ministry. And this shocked them. They were pretty surprised. But they were like, okay. So they set him up to go to Princeton Seminary. And they say, okay, well, you're going to go into seminary then. Let's do this. In 1879, he got married to his wife, Annie. And uh, on their honeymoon, they went out to this mountain trip in Germany. And one of the more tragic aspects of his life is while they were on their honeymoon, they went out for a walk and they got caught in what is described as a really bad thunderstorm, essentially. And we don't quite know what happened, whether she was hit by lightning or had some type of a neurological issue, but uh, she ends up becoming very ill uh, and ends up in an invalid state and B.B. Warfield would have to end up caring for her the rest of his life, and towards the end of her life, she would actually end up bedridden. B.B. Warfield, though, is completely devoted to his wife, and he doesn't let this hinder him at all. It said that he never left her towards the end of his life. He would never leave her for more than two hours alone, and he would just be devoted and take care of her. And because of this, he actually was not that active in the church because going to church would actually take more time away than he felt it was safe to leave Annie alone for. And so he never really got off Princeton's campus. Uh, At one point towards the end of their life, he doesn't leave the college campus that he lives on and teaches at for 10 years years and that they only left that one time which was to see if getting her off campus would help her it did not help her and so they didn't leave i cannot imagine uh this this blows my mind and i mean we see warfield here turn it into a positive experience and i feel like this is like a common thread i see with a lot of these people that we're doing episodes on is that uh, when tragedy befalls them or when when troubles befall them they use that as a way to uh, learn patience and learn humbleness. And, and a lot of these great people we see fall under these these terribly tragic scenarios uh, and learn to walk with God in ways that are hard for us to understand. He uses the extra time at home to read books, write books, and write articles. This allows him to answer far more criticisms and ideas than the average person could because he was always at home. And they would say of him, he had two loves, work and his wife. And when his wife died, they were worried he was actually going to lose himself in his work. Uh, This man was sometimes known as a cold-hearted theologian to some people. He was known as a great teacher to others. He was an inspiration to fight the good fight to others. But to his wife, he was a loving husband who never ceased to care for her and be by her side. In this sermon... Warfield gives us the example of Christ. That's the title of the sermon, example of the incarnate, right? How we aren't completely lost, but we can look to the Bible. We can look to Jesus. We can look to those heroes of faith for our knowledge of how to follow God, even in those gray areas. He points out that God came as a baby and then a child and then a man. He lived his whole life here. He didn't just skip straight to the redemption, uh, but he showed us the story of a person uh, and he showed us that so so we can understand how to, how to walk as a Christian, how to lead as a Christian uh, throughout our life. And we can see an example of how to live in Warfield's life, too. Warfield was a fighter for the truth in an era when people were questioning it and were giving up on it. 
While everything had changed around him, he stood fast on God's word. But when he was at home, he tenderly loved and he gave up everything for his wife. She was sick and frail, but he put her at the center of his life so that he could take care of her. He lived out his life this example of a sacrificial groom who gives everything up so that he can love his bride. The example of the incarnation. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not possible to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the form of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Christ our example. After Christ our Redeemer, no words can more deeply stir the Christian heart than these. Every Christian joyfully recognizes the example of Christ, as, in the admirable words of a great Scottish commentator, a body of living legislation, as law embodied and pictured in a perfect humanity. In him, we find the moral ideal historically realized, and we bow before it as sublime and yearn after it with all the assembled desires of our renewed souls. How lovingly we follow in thought every footstep of the Son of Man. On the rim of the hills that shut up the emerald cup of Nazareth, on the blue marge of a Gesenaret, over the mountains of Judea, and long to walk in spirit by his side. He came to save at every age, says Irenaeus, and therefore he came as an infant, a child, a boy, a youth, and a man. And there is no age that we cannot find its example in him. We see him, the properest child that was ever given to a mother's arms, through all the years of childhood at Nazareth, subjecting himself to his parents. We see him a youth, laboring day by day, contentedly at his father's bench, in this lower sphere too, with no other thought than to be about his father's business. We see him in his holy manhood, going, as his custom was, Sabbath by Sabbath to the synagogue, God as he was, not too good to worship with his weaker brethren. And then the horizon broadens. We see him at the banks of Jordan, because it became him to fulfill every righteousness, meekly receiving the baptism of repentance for us. We see him in the wilderness, calmly rejecting the subtlest trials of the evil one, refusing to supply his needs by a misuse of his divine power, repelling the confusion of tempting God with trusting God, declining to seek his father's ends by any other means than his father's. We see him among the thousands of Galilee, anointed of God with the Holy Ghost and power, going about doing good, with no pride of birth, though he was a king, with no pride of intellect, though omniscience dwelt within him, with no pride of power, although all power in heaven and earth was in his hands, or of station, though the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily, but in lowliness of mind, esteeming everyone better than himself." healing the sick, casting out devils, feeding the hungry, and everywhere breaking to men the bread of life. We see him everywhere offering to men his life for the salvation of their souls. And when at last the forces of evil gathered thick around him, walking alike without display and dismay the path of suffering appointed for him, and giving his life at Calvary, that through his death the world might live. Who can find in all his life a single lack a single failure to set a perfect example. In what difficulty in life, in what trial, in what danger or uncertainty, when we turn our eyes to him,
do we fail to find the example that we need? And if perchance we are, by the grace of God, enabled to walk with him, but a step in the way, how our hearts burn within us with longing to always be with him, to be strengthened by the almighty power of God in the inner man, to make every footprint which he has left in the world a stepping stone to climb upward over his divine path. Do we not rightly say that next to our longing to be in Christ is our corresponding to be like Christ? That only second in our hearts to his great act of obedience into death by which he became our savior stands his holy life in our world of sin by which he becomes our example. Of course, our text is not singular in calling us to make Christ our example. Be you imitators of me, even as I also am of Christ, is rather the whole burden of the ethical side of Paul's teaching. And in this too, he was but an imitator of Christ, who pleads with us to learn of him because he is meek and lowly in heart. The uniqueness of our present passage is that it takes us back to Christ's early life and bids us imitate him in the great act of his incarnation itself. Not, of course, as if the implication were that we were equal with Christ and needed to stoop to such service as he performed. Why are you proud, O man? Augustus asked pointedly. God for you became low. You would perhaps be ashamed to imitate a lowly man, then at least imitate the lowly God. The Son of God came in the character of man and was made low. He, since he was God, became man. Do you, O man, recognize that you are man? Your entire humility is to know yourself. The very force of the appeal lies, in a word, in the infinite exaltation of Christ above us, and the mention of the Incarnation is the Apostle's reminder to us of the ineffable majesty which was by nature his to whom he would raise our admiring eyes. Paul pries at our hearts here with the great lever of the deity of our exemplar. He calls us to do nothing less than to be imitators of God. What encouragement greater than this, cries Christendom, with his instinctive perception of the motive springs of the human heart. Nothing arouses a great soul to the performing of good works so much as learning that it is in this he is likened to God. And here, too, Paul is but the follower of his Lord. Be you merciful as your Father which is in heaven is merciful, are words which fell from his divine lips, altogether similar in their implication to Paul's words in the text. Let it be this mind that is in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It is the spirit which animated our Lord in the act of his incarnation, which his apostle would see us imitate. He would have us in all our acts to be like Christ, as he showed himself to be in the innermost core of his being. When he became poor, he that was rich, that we by his poverty might be made rich. We perceive then that the exhortation of the apostle gathers force for itself from the deity of Christ, and that from the nature of the transaction, by which he, being God, was brought into this sphere of dependent earthly life in which we live by nature. It is altogether natural, then, that he sharpens his appeal by reminding his readers somewhat fully who Christ was and what he did for our salvation, in order that, having the facts more vividly before their minds, they may more acutely feel the spirit by which he was animated. So in a perfectly natural way, Paul is led not to inform his readers, but to remind them in a few quick, lively phrases, which do not interrupt the main lines of discourse, but rather etch them in with a deeper color of what we may call the whole doctrine of the person of Christ. The golden-mouthed preacher of the ancient church, impressed with this fullness of teaching and inspired himself to one of his loftiest flights by the verse of the apostle's crisp language, 
pictures the passage itself as an arena, and the truth as it runs burning through the clauses as the victorious chariot, dashing against and overthrowing its contestants one after the other, until at last, amid the clamor of applause which rises from every side to heaven, it springs alone towards the goal, with coursers winged with joy, sweeping like a single flash over the ground. One by one, he points out the heresies concerning the person of Christ, which had sprung up in the ancient church, as clause by clause the text smite and destroys them, and is not content until he shows how the knees of all half-truths and whole falsehoods alike concerning this great matter are made by these searching words to bow before their Savior's perfect deity, his complete humanity, and the unity of his person. But we must not lose ourselves in a purely theological interest with such a passage before us. Rather, let us keep our eyes in this hour on Paul's main purpose and seek to feel the force of the example of Christ as he here advances it. First, let us observe that the actor to whose example Paul would direct our eyes is declared by him to have been no other than God himself, who was before in the form of God are his words. After the wear and tear of 2,000 years on the phrase, it would not be surprising if we should fail to feel this as strongly as we ought. Let us remember that the phraseology which Paul here employs was a popular usage of his day, although first given general vogue by the Aristotelian philosophy, and that it was accordingly the most natural language for strongly asserting the deity of Christ which could suggest itself to him. Form in a word is equivalent to our phrase specific character. If we may illustrate great things by small, we may say, in this manner of speech, that the matter of a sword, for instance, is steel, while its form is the whole body of characterizing qualities which distinguish a sword from all other pieces of steel, and which, therefore, make this particular piece of steel distinctly a sword. The same mode of speech is, of course, equally applicable in the spiritual sphere. The matter of an angel, again, is bare spiritual substance, while the form is the body of qualities which make this spirit specifically an angel. So too with God. The matter of God is bare spiritual substance, and the form is that body of qualities which distinguish him from all other spiritual beings, which constitute him as God, and without hitch, he would not be God. What Paul asserts then when he says that Jesus Christ existed in the form of God is that he had all those characterizing qualities which make God God, the presence of which constitutes God, and in the absence of which God does not exist. He who is in the form of God is God. It is not without significance that, out of the possible modes of expression open to him, Paul was led to choose just this mode of asserting the deity of our Lord. His mind in this passage was not on the bare divine essence. It was upon the divine qualities of Christ. It is not the abstract conception that Christ is God that moves us to our deep admiration for his sublime act of self-sacrifice, but rather our concrete realization that he was all that God is and had all that God has, that God's omnipotence was his, his infinite exaltation, his unapproachable blessedness. Therefore, Paul is instinctively led to choose an expression which tells us not the bare fact that Christ was God, but that he was in the form of God. And he had in full possession all those characterizing qualities which, taken together, make God that all-holy, perfect, all-blessed being which we call God. The apostle prepares his readers for the great example by quickening their appreciation, not only of who, but of what Christ was. Let us note then, secondly, that the apostle outlines for us fully the action which this divine being performed. 
He took the form of a servant by coming into the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself by becoming subject even to death, and that the death of the cross. There is no metamorphosis of substance asserted here. The form of God is not said to have been transmuted into the form of a servant, but he who was in the form of God is declared to have also taken to himself the form of a servant. Nor is there, on the other hand, any deceptive show of an unreal humiliation brought before us here. He took not the appearance, mere state and circumstances, or mere work and performance, but the actual form of a servant. All those essential qualities and attributes which belong to and constitute being a servant. The assumption involved the taking of an actual servile nature as well as a subordinate station. And a servant is at once further explained in both its mode and its effect. He took the form of a servant by coming in the likeness of men. He did not become merely a man, but by taking the form of a servant, he came into a state in which he appeared as man. And by taking the form of a servant, and thus being found in fashion as a man, he became subject to obedience. And obedience pressed so far in its humiliation that it extended even to death, and that shameful death on a cross. Words cannot adequately paint the depth of this humiliation. But this it was, the taking the form of a servant, with its resultant necessity of obedience to such a bitter end, this it was that he who was by nature in the form of God, in the full possession and use of all the divine attributes and qualities, powers, and prerogatives, was willing to do for us. Let us observe then thirdly that the apostle clearly announces to us the spirit in which our Lord performed this act. Although he was in the form of God, he yet did not consider his being on an equality with God a precious prize to be eagerly attained, but made no account of himself, taking the form of a servant. It was then in a spirit of pure unselfishness and self-sacrifice that he looked not on its own things, but also on the things of others, that under the force of love esteemed others more than himself. It was in this mind, or in the apostle's words, it was not considering his essential equality with God as a precious possession, that making no account of himself. It was in this mind that Christ, who was before us in the form of God, took the form of a servant. It was the state of mind that led him to so marvelous an act. No compulsion from his father, no desire for himself, no hope of gain or fear of loss, but simple, unselfish, self-sacrificing love. Its one exhortation is, let it be this mind that is also in you. As we read through the passage, we may, by contact with the full mind and the heart of the apostle, learn much more than this. But let us not fail to grasp this, his chief message to us here, that Christ Jesus, though he was God, yet cared less for his equality with God, cared less for himself and his own things than he did for us, and therefore gave himself for us. Firmly grasping this, then, as the essential content and the special message of the passage, there are some implications that flow from it which we cannot afford to miss. And first of these is a very great and marvelous one, that we have a God who is capable of self-sacrifice for us. Although he was in the form of God, Christ did not consider his being on inequality with God so precious a possession that he could not lay it aside, but rather made no account of himself. It was our God who so loved us that he gave himself for us. Now here is a wonderful thing. Men tell us that God is, by the very necessity of his nature, incapable of passion, 
incapable of being moved by inducements from without, that he dwells in holy calm and unchangeable blessedness, untouched by human sufferings or sorrows forever, haunting the lucid interspace of world and world, where never creeps a cloud nor moves a wind, nor ever falls the least white star of snow, nor ever lowest rolls thunder moans, nor sound of human sorrow mounts to mar his everlasting sacred calm. Let us bless our God that this is not true. God can feel. God does love. We have spiritual warrant for believing, as it has been well phrased, that moral heroism has a place within the severe of the divine nature. We have scriptural warrant for believing that, like the old hero of Zurich, God has reached out loving arms and gathered into his own bosom the forest of darts which otherwise had pierced ours. But is not this gross anthropomorphism? We are careless of names. It is the truth of God. And we decline to yield up the God of the Bible and the God of our hearts to any philosophical abstraction. We have and must have an ethical God, a God whom we can love and in whom we can trust. We may feel awe in the presence of the absolute, as in we feel awe in the presence of a storm or of the earthquake. We may feel our dependence on its presence as we feel our helplessness before the tornado or the flood. But we cannot love it. We cannot trust it. And our hearts, which are just as trustworthy a guide as our dialectics, cry out for a God whom we may love and trust. We decline once for all to subject our whole conception of God to the category of the absolute, which, as has been truly said, like Pharaoh's lean cow, devours all other attributes. Nevertheless, let us rejoice that our God has not left us by searching to find him out. Let us rejoice that he has plainly revealed himself to us in his word as a God who loves us, and who, because he loves us, has sacrificed himself for us. Let us remember that the fundamental conception of the Christian idea of God is that God is love, and the fundamental dogma of the Christian religion is that God so loved us that he gave himself for us. Accordingly, the primary presupposition of our present passage is that our God was capable of and did actually perform this amazing act of unselfish self-sacrifice for the good of man. The second inference that we should draw from our passage consists simply in following the apostle in his application of this divine example to our human life. A life of self-sacrificing unselfishness is the most divinely beautiful life that man can lead. He whom, as our master we have engaged to obey, whom as our example we are pledged to imitate, is presented to us here in the great model of self-sacrificing unselfishness. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, is the apostle's pleading. We need to note carefully, however, that it is not self-deprecation, but self-denial or self-forgetfulness that is here commended to us. If we would follow Christ, we must, every one of us, not in pride, but in humility, yet not in lowness, but in lowliness, not degrade ourselves, but forget ourselves, and seek every man, not his own things, but those of others. Who does not see that in this organism, which we call human society, such a mode of life is the condition of all real help and health? There is no doubt another ideal of life far more grateful to our fallen human nature, an ideal based on arrogance, assumption, self-assertion, working through strife, and issuing in conquest. Conquest of a place for ourselves, a position, the admiration of men, power over men. We see it's working on every side of us, in the competition of business life, in the struggle for wealth on the one side, forcing a struggle for bare bread on the other. 
in social life, in the fierce battle of men and women for leading parts in the farce of societal display, even in the church itself and among the churches where, too, unhappily, arrogant, pretentious, and unchristian self-assertion do not fail to find their temporary reward. But it is clear that this is not Christ's ideal, nor is it to this that he has set us his perfect example. He made no account of himself, though he was in the form of God. He yet looked not upon his equality with God as a possession to be prized, when he could, by forgetting self, rescue those whom he was not ashamed, admit all his glory to call his brethren. Are there any whom you and I are ashamed to call our brethren? Oh, that the divine ideal of life as service could take possession of our souls. Oh, that we could remember at all times and in all relations that the Son of Man came into the world to minister, and by his ministry has glorified all ministering forever. Oh, that we could once for all grasp the meaning of the great fact that self-forgetfulness and self-sacrifice express divine ideals of life. And so we are led to the third implication, which comes to us from the text, that it is difficult to set a limit to the self-sacrifice which the example of Christ calls upon us to be ready to undergo for the good of our brethren. It's comparatively easy to recognize that the ideal of the Christian life is self-sacrificing unselfishness and to allow that it is required of those who seek to enter into it, to subordinate self and to seek first the kingdom of God. But is it so easy to acknowledge, even to ourselves, that this is not to be read generally, merely, but in detail, and is to be applied not only to some eminent saints, but to all who would be Christ's servants, that it is required of us, and that what is required of us is not some self-denial, but all self-sacrifice? Yet is it not to this that the example of Christ would lead us? Not, of course, to self-degradation, not to self-effacement exactly, but to complete self-rejection, entire and ungrudging self-sacrifice. Is it to be to death itself? Christ died. Are we to endure wrongs? What wrongs did he not meekly bear? Are we to surrender our clear and recognized rights? Did Christ stand upon his unquestioned right of retaining his equality with God? Are we to endure unnatural evils, permit ourselves to be driven into inappropriate situations, unresistingly sustain injuries and unjust accusations and attacks? What more unnatural than that the God of the universe should become a servant in the world, ministering not to his Father only, but also to his servants, our Lord and Master, washing our very feet? What more abhorrent than that God should die? There was no length to which Christ's self-sacrifice did not lead him. These words are dull and inexpressive. We cannot enter into thought so high. He who was in the form of God took such thought for us that he made no account of himself. Into the immeasurable calm of the divine blessedness, he permitted this thought to enter, I will die for men. And so mighty was his love, so colossal the divine purpose to save, that he thought nothing of his divine majesty, nothing of his unsullied blessedness, nothing of his equality with God, but absorbed in us our needs, our misery, our helplessness, he made no account of himself. If this is to be our example, what limit can we set on our self-sacrifice? Let us remember that we are no longer our own, but Christ's, bought with the price of his precious blood, and are henceforth to live, not for ourselves, but for him, for him in his creatures, serving him in serving them. Let all thought of our dignity, our possessions, our rights perish out of sight. 
when Christ's service calls to us. Let this mind be in us that was also in him, when he took no account of himself, but, God as he was, took the form of a servant and humbled himself, he who was Lord, to lowly obedience, even to death, and that the death of the cross. In such a mind as this, where's the end of unselfishness? Fourth, let us not, however, do the apostle the injustice of fancying that this is a morbid life to which he summons us. The self-sacrifice to which he exhorts us, unlimited as it is, going all lengths and starting back at nothing, is nevertheless not an unnatural life. After all, it issues not from the destruction of self, but only in the destruction of selfishness. It leads not to a Buddha-like unselfing, but to a Christ-like self-development. It would not make us into deedless dreamers, lazing out a life of self-suppression, not of selfish love, but would light the flames of love within us, by which we would literally ache for souls. The example of Christ and the exhortation of Paul found themselves upon a sense of the unspeakable value of souls. Our Lord took no account of himself, only because the value of the souls of men pressed upon his heart. And following him, we are not to consider our own things, but those of others, just because everything earthly that concerns us is as nothing compared to their eternal welfare. Our self-rejection is not for our sake, but for the sakes of others. And it is not to mere self-denial that Christ calls us, but specifically to self-sacrifice. Not to unselfing ourselves, but to unselfishing ourselves. Self-denial, for its own sake, is in its very nature ascetic, monkish. It concentrates our whole attention on self, self-knowledge, self-control, and can, therefore, eventuate in nothing other than the very height of selfishness. At best, it succeeds only in subjecting the outer self to the inner self, or the lower self to the higher self, and only the more surely falls into the trenches of self-seeking. That it partially conceals the selfishness of its goal by refining its ideal of self and excluding its grosser and more outward elements. Self-denial, then, drives to the cloister, narrows and contracts the soul, murders within us all innocent desires, dries up all the springs of sympathy, and nurses and coddles our self-importance until we grow so great in our own esteem as to be careless of the trials and sufferings, the joys and aspirations, the striving and failures and successes of our fellow man. Self-denial will make us cold, hard, unsympathetic, proud, arrogant, self-esteeming, fanatical, overbearing, cruel. It may make monks and Stoics, but it cannot make Christians. It is not to this that Christ's example calls us. He did not cultivate self, even his divine self. He took no account of self. He was not led by his divine impulse out of the world, driven back to the recesses of his own soul to brood morbidly over his own needs, until to gain his own seemed worth all sacrifice to him. He was led by his love for others into the world, to forget himself in the needs of others, to sacrifice self once for all upon the altar of sympathy. Self-sacrifice brought Christ into the world, and self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from, but into the midst of men. Wherever men suffer, there will we be to comfort. Wherever men strive, there will we be to help. Wherever men fail, there will we be to uplift. Wherever men succeed, there will we be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and our fellows. It means absorption in them. It means forgetfulness of self in others. It means entering into every man's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. It means richness of development. It means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives, binding ourselves to a thousand souls, 
by so loving a sympathy that their lives become ours. It means that all the experiences of men shall smite our souls and shall beat and batter these stubborn hearts of ours into fitness for their heavenly home. It is the path to the highest possible development, by which alone we can be truly made men. Not that we shall undertake it with this end in view. This were to dry up its springs at their source. We cannot be self-consciously self-forgetful, selfishly unselfish. Only when we humbly walk this path, seeking truly in it not our own things, but those of others, we shall find the promise true, that he who loses his life shall find it. Only when, like Christ, and in loving obedience to his call and example, we take no account of ourselves, but freely give ourselves to others, shall we find, each in his measure, the saying true of himself also, where also God has highly exalted him. The path of self-sacrifice is the path to glory. I love how passionate B.B. Warfield is about just the importance of the Bible, the inerrancy of the Bible being being the Word of God. Um, fast forward 150 years to where we're at today, like that that is still a very real discussion and a very real thing that that is is really not a terribly popular opinion um, in today's society, even amongst Christians. There always there, there is always a take on the Bible. Um, and so I, I feel like this is one of kind of one of those timeless sermons that, that does kind of speak through time that, uh, the Bible's the word of God. And for me, something else that Warfield emphasizes in the sermon is just that, you know, Jesus Christ came to be a servant and he was completely unselfish for us, what he did on the cross. And even before the cross, the life that he lived, he was with the poor, he was doing miracles, he was doing and living that kind of life. And, you know, at the beginning of this episode, we talked about, you know, what do we do when tough decisions come our way? And at the very least, if we're looking to Jesus Christ as our example, one of the things we can ask ourselves in those moments, okay, what do I want to do? We can just ask ourselves, well, what is the unselfish choice to make? What is the one that's going to require sacrificial love? And what is the one that's going to lead my life and give my life that model of Christ-like look to it? And I think when we look through our decisions in that prism and less about how this will help me and more about how can I live a life that really helps others, I think our decisions become easier. Thank you for listening to Revive Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Nathaniel Owen. Uh, if you enjoyed today's episode, you can read the full transcript at revivethoughts.com. Feel free to also send us an email on our website there if you have a suggestion for a future sermon for us to cover. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe so that you can hear all future episodes and future sermons of future preachers that we will be bringing to you. Also, share it with a friend, put it out on social media, and let others hear the stuff you've been listening to and be encouraged, hopefully, as well. And while you're on social media, feel free to give us a like on Facebook, follow us on Instagram. We have lots of great resources and information that we are putting out there for you guys to enjoy from these sermons, and lots of great quotes and stuff that you can share with others. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts.
This episode is brought to you by the Worth Your Time podcast, where you'll hear from Christian female entrepreneurs, politicians, ministry leaders, authors, athletes, CEOs, and more. I'm Erica Anderson, mom of two, writer, and host and creator of Worth Your Time. I created this podcast because I wanted to hear from more women like me who were interested in the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. How do we navigate the choppy waters of partisan politics? How do we engage with culture honorably as Christian professionals? I know you don't have a lot of time. And that's why I make every second worth it on this show. You'll hear from women that aren't on every other Christian podcast, and we get really real because I don't know how to function any other way. Episodes drop every other Tuesday. Hope to see you there.